You are listening to Sermon Audio from First Baptist Church in Louise, Texas. Thank you for listening. Y'all can go ahead and be seated. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up. We're in John chapter 17. We'll be in verses 1 through 19 this morning. John chapter 17, verses 1 through 19. Um, we've been having this journey through the Gospel of John, and in the last few weeks we've been going through Jesus' last instructions to his disciples before his departure. And today we're going to see something really awesome. If you ask most believers, though, uh, where there needs to be improvement in their walk with Jesus, they would say, maybe I need to read my Bible a little bit more, maybe I should go to church a little more often, or, you know, whatever. We've all heard the things, whatever the excuse is. Um, but I believe that one of the most overlooked aspects of our walk with Jesus is our prayer lives. I know that that's, that's where I fail a lot, is in our prayer life, especially when things are going pretty well especially when things are kind of moving right along. But the great truth about prayer is that prayer is our hearts crying out to God, to the God of our salvation, both in the good and in the bad, both in the joy and in the heartache, both in the pain and in the triumph. Prayer isn't something that we should tack on to the beginning or the end of our day. Prayer is our lifeline to God, therefore we should be praying without ceasing. Sometimes we make excuses for why we don't pray. There's not enough time. I woke up too late. I don't have the energy. Whatever the reason is, we say, oh man, I can't pray today. But there should never be an excuse for the lack of prayer. We should always be communicating with our Father. There is, I'm going to be blunt with you, there is no good excuse for a lack of prayer in the believer's life. There is no good excuse. They're just excuses. In fact, even Jesus had a vibrant prayer life, right? He, he leads us by example. He spent time praying to the Father. This is God in the flesh, and he still took time to pray. And this week and next week, we're going to look at a beautiful prayer that Jesus prays for his followers and for himself. And if I'm honest, this prayer that we are going to look at has been overwhelming for me. To know that on the eve of his death, right before his crucifixion, Jesus was praying for his people is mind-blowing. He's about to go to the cross. He's about to face his greatest struggle. He's about to face the reality of a brutal death. And what does he do? He prays not just for himself, but he prays for his followers. He prays for those who are committed to him. This prayer is so rich and so deep. That one pastor, his name is Thomas Manton from the 1600s, preached 45 sermons on just this one text. 45 sermons on John chapter 17. And then they compiled that, that, uh, those sermons and created a 450-page book on these, what is it, 26 verses. There's so much rich, richness and depth to this scripture that we're only going to try to cover a big majority of them in these next couple of sermons, right? Therefore, we should always go back because of the richness and the depth. We should always go back and we should try to chisel away more truth and more depth and more richness even after we finish Sunday morning. That's the amazing thing about God and God's word is that there is a never-ending source of knowledge and joy in it. 
So I want to encourage you this morning that you need to spend some time just reading this prayer this week, hearing what Jesus is saying about his followers, examining that Jesus was praying for us right before his crucifixion. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your love. Jesus, thank you for your sacrifice. Thank you for giving your life for us. Thank you for your love and your care for your people. That right before you were about to go to the cross, you were praying for us. And Lord, another mind-blowing thing is, Jesus, that you are sitting there and you're praying for us right now, interceding on our behalf, talking to the Father on our behalf. You have been so good to us. You've been so gracious to us. Help us to not forget the importance of prayer. Help us to follow in the model that you set before us. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Chapter 17, verses 1 through 3, we read this. Jesus spoke these things, looked up to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son so that the Son may glorify you. Since you gave him authority over all people so that he may give eternal life to everyone you have given him. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and the one that you have sent, Jesus Christ. So Jesus begins his prayer right before his death with glory, the glorification of the Father through the glorification of the Son. Jesus has just instructed his followers that the path that lay before them is going to be difficult. He goes ahead and lays out the marching orders that when he dies, this is what they need to do. They need to continue to preach his message. He told them about the giving of the Holy Spirit, that after he ascends into heaven, they, he is going, the Holy Spirit is going to descend upon them. He has given them a glimpse of the persecution that lies ahead. And after Jesus taught them, what does he do? He looks up and prayed to the Father. You see, most time in our culture, when we, we pray, what do we do? We tell you to close your eyes and bow your head. But a common way for Jewish people to pray was to actually lift their eyes towards heaven. We see this again in John chapter 11, verse 41, where right before Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, he lifted his eyes and prayed towards heaven. He didn't say a silent prayer either. He prayed aloud. He prayed so people could hear him. And why was he praying aloud? Well, it's because he wasn't done teaching his followers. He wasn't done instructing the disciples. He was still teaching them and training them through the prayer that he prayed. Jesus is recorded throughout the Gospels praying aloud for others. We have the example in, in Matthew chapter 6, right? The Lord's Prayer, our Father who art in heaven, right? Which is an instructional way to pray. Yes, we can repeat that prayer, but it's more of a guideline for how we should pray. Here, we see that this, I'm convinced, is the actual Lord's Prayer. This is the Lord praying for his people. It's a prayer of beauty and grace, a prayer to encourage and confront, a prayer to strengthen and embolden, a prayer to guide and instruct. Jesus' prayer begins with the realization that the hour has come. What hour has come? This is the hour we've been waiting for in John's Gospel that we heard about, the, that we heard about, that we heard about over and over and over again. The hour has not yet come. The hour has not yet come. And here, Jesus says to the Father, the hour has come. You know that the hour has come. This is not just the hour that we've been waiting for in John's gospel. This is the hour that the whole world, all of creation, has been waiting for. 
And what is this hour? This is the hour of Jesus' sacrifice. The hour when the promises of Scripture are fulfilled and humanity can now truly be fully reconciled to God. The moment that those who believe in Jesus can be forgiven of their sin and freed from the bondage of sin and death. This hour, this sacrifice is what is going to bring glory to Jesus. And Jesus asked the Father to glorify the Son. We see this beautiful picture of a relationship between the Father and Jesus, between a Father and a Son, and they are in an intimate relationship with one another. They are joined together in mission and on purpose, and the mission and the purpose is that God be glorified, that Jesus be glorified. God's mission is that he receives the glory. The glory Jesus seeks in his death ultimately leads to the glory the Father receives from his creation. At this moment, you may be asking yourselves, what does Jesus mean by this glory and this glorify? It's an important question to ask, especially because it seems to be, as we've talked about, Jesus' number one priority, glorify the Father. The word glory means God's majesty, God's beauty, His splendor. Glory is God's display of His divine goodness in His creation. Glory is the inherent characteristic of God. All of His divine attributes spring forth from His glory. Glory is His greatness, His transcendence, His holiness. Now to glorify God is to point people to His glory, to make God's glory known. So to glorify God is to realize and recognize His glory. And here we see that Jesus shares in the glory of the Father. They share a mutual glory. And Jesus is asking that the Father make his glory known so that the glory of the Father may be known as well. So that glory of the Father can be celebrated and worshipped. You see, that was Jesus' mission. To bring glory and honor and praise to the Father. To magnify the name of the Father. To point people to the glory of the Father. And we see here that the cross of Christ is the glorifying event, the most glorifying event in all of history. At the cross of Jesus, God is most glorified. His splendor and his mercy and his grace and his radiance and his majesty and his beauty are on full display as Jesus hangs there on that cross. When he lays his life down to redeem his creation, the cross doesn't produce shame, it radiated glory. Jesus' central aim and mission was to make much of God, to glorify God, to point people to the goodness and the faithfulness of God. And likewise, as followers of Jesus, our calling and our goal should be to bring glory to God. The goal of our life is not to live a good life, but to live a life that is God-honoring and God-glorifying. Why? Why? Because Jesus died to demonstrate God's glory, we live to radiate God's glory. Jesus died so that we have, may, may have eternal life. That's what verse 2 says. And we need to recognize that eternal life is not something that we long for. It's not about a quantity of days. It's not something that's tacked in after we die, but it's about a quality of life here and now. We have eternal life in the future, but we have eternal life now too. Eternal life exists right now. Eternal life is a relationship with the everlasting God. Eternal life is a life forever delighting in the manifold glories of God. 
Eternal life is seeing God and rejoicing forever in His presence. Eternal life is living how we were created to live in fellowship with our Creator. Eternal life is access to Jesus' complete joy, peace, and victory that we talked about last week. But eternal life is not a reality for everyone. Eternal life is only for those who have placed their faith and trust in Jesus. That's what he means in verse 3. This is eternal life that they may know you, the one and only true God, and that the one that you have sent, Jesus Christ. Apart from Jesus, eternal life is not possible. But if you place your trust in Jesus, then you can have eternal life. But how can Jesus make such a statement? How is eternal life possible through Jesus? Well, he tells us in the next two verses. Verses 4 and 5, he says this, I have glorified you on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. Now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Jesus tells us that there are two reasons two reasons for eternal life based on who he is. First, he completed the work that he has been sent to do. What is that work that he's been sent to do? The cross, to die. Jesus' death and resurrection is the purpose for Jesus coming to earth. The point of Jesus' putting on flesh and living here is to go to the cross. This is what brings glory to God. This is how God is glorified through the death of Jesus. The moment Jesus most reveals the goodness of God is on the cross. The work is finished. That's what he says. The work is finished. The work you have sent me to do here is completed. Jesus did what he was sent to do. Therefore, now we have access to God. We can now enter into a relationship with the Father through repentance and trust in Jesus' work that is finished. Which is an interesting phrase because Jesus hadn't died yet at this point. right? He says it's completed, but I'm not dead yet. He prays this prayer before he goes to the cross. So how can he say that it's completed when it's not been completed yet. Well, Jesus is saying that he is so committed to the mission of the Father that it's as good as done. There's no wavering. He isn't going to change his mind. He isn't going to back out. He is resolute to go to the cross. Nothing is going to stop him. So how can he say it's completed? He can say it's completed because it's done. There's no backing out now. Now, secondly, eternal life is possible because Jesus wasn't just another person. He wasn't just another person. We read in verse 5 now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. So Jesus had glory before he came to earth. He is God incarnate. He, he shares the glory with the Father. This isn't a, a minor point of theology. Jesus existed before the world was created. His pre-existence is essential to understanding what happened on Calvary. The God of the universe, the King of all creation, put on flesh to die and rescue us. And if that's not true, then his sacrifice wouldn't have meant anything. This is fleshed out in Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 11. And Paul says this, Jesus, who existed, who existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And for this reason, God highly exalted him 
giving him the name above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see, Jesus was preexistent. He existed before creation, and he voluntarily gave up his heavenly glory to come and magnify the Father so that we could share in that glory and glorify the Father for all eternity. Nevertheless, Jesus was going to be clothed with the same glory that he had before he came to earth. He was going to go back to the Father and be glorified once again. That, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Why? To the glory of God the Father. So he came and he died and he was raised again, and then he ascended into heaven to return to the Father and be clothed with that glory that he voluntarily gave up to save us. And after he accomplishes what he set out to do on earth, he says this in verse 6, I have revealed your name to the people, to the people you gave me from the world. They were yours. You gave them to me. They have kept your word. Now they know that everything you have given me is from you because I have given them the words you gave me. They have received them and have known for certain that I came from you. They have believed you sent me. So Jesus, through his teachings and through his signs, has revealed to the world who the Father is. The glory of the Father. That was one of the aims that he had when coming into the world, to fully reveal who the Father was. And when Jesus came, and what Jesus did, and who Jesus revealed the name of the Father to people was important. What does it mean to reveal the name of the Father? It means to show us who God is. God's name embodies his character. To reveal God's name is to make God's character known. So Jesus came to earth to die for sin, but also to paint a beautiful picture of who God is. But what we see here in verse 6 is that Jesus' prayer starts to take a shift. Jesus begins to pray for his disciples. And it's only going to get more in-depth as we go along, but he begins to pray for his disciples, the one that the Father had given him. And what does he say? They have kept your word. What does it mean to keep God's word? Because over the last few weeks, we have seen the disciples. And what have we seen of the disciples is they don't get it yet. They are confused, and they are befuddled, and they are questioning, and they don't understand it yet. But Jesus says here, they have kept your word. Jesus is showing us the difference between the world's unbelief and disobedience and the disciples' faithfulness and obedience. You see, the disciples don't get it all the time, but they believed. They held fast. They didn't act like Judas. They didn't abandon Jesus. They continued to grow in their knowledge of who God is through the teachings of Jesus. And this is what we have to know when it comes to our own belief in Jesus, is that it's not about perfect belief. It's not about knowing everything. It's not about getting everything right all the time. It's about holding on to the truth. It's about growing in our knowledge of him, growing in our faith and growing in our commitment to God. God knows that we aren't going to get it right all the time. God knows that we are going to stumble, that we are going to fall, that we are going to miss the mark. But the great thing about God is, is that he accounted for our stupidity and our failures when he saved us. He isn't surprised and he isn't caught off guard when we are imperfect. He expects us to be. He knows we're going to fail. 
And that's the beauty about God's work and God's word is that it doesn't depend on us. God is in control so much that even our faults and our failures don't stifle or hold back his mission. But when we are aligned with him and we are doing what he has created us to do and what he has called us to do, we get to see his glory more fully on display. Now, our propensity for failure does not excuse us from pursuing or chasing after holiness. You don't get to use your failures as an excuse to not pursue Jesus. We should restlessly and relentlessly pursue imitating Jesus. We should pursue chasing after the image of God, knowing that when we fall, and we will fall, God's glory is not going to be compromised. That's the one thing that's so amazing about God's grace and patience with us is that it's based on his character and not mine. So we don't hold on to what I want. We hold on to the truth of who he is. That's what we grasp onto, the goodness of God, the truth of the gospel, the reality that God is in control, that God made a way for us to be saved, that God's word is what is going to sustain us, that God's word is what instructs us, that the Holy Spirit inside of us is going to guide us to be more like Jesus. Like the disciples, if we keep his word, we are shown to be faithful. We keep his word even in the failures. We keep pursuing him when we stumble. Jesus continues his prayer with a focus on protecting the disciples in verses 9 through 12. He says this, I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you have given me because they are yours. Everything I have is yours, and everything you have is mine, and I am glorified in them. I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by your name that you have given me, so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I was protecting them by your name, and you that you have given me. I guarded them, and not one of them is lost except the son of destruction, so that scripture may be fulfilled. So Jesus here is praying for the protection of his disciples, and he makes a distinction between the world and his disciples. He says, I am praying for them, but I am not praying for the world. Remember in the Gospel of John, the world is those who are opposed to Jesus, those who are hostile to his message. So at this time, he's praying for his disciples. He's praying for his own. That doesn't mean he never prayed for those who didn't believe. It simply means that at this junction in his ministry, his focus is on those who have placed their faith and trust in him. Verse 10, he says, everything I have is yours and everything you have is mine and I am glorified in them. This is an interesting verse to me. He's talking specifically about the disciples here. And in verse 9, he talks about the disciples belonging to the Father. But what's most interesting here is that he says, I am glorified in them. Those who believe and trust and walk with Jesus bring him glory. When we make much of Jesus where we live, where we work, and where we play, then Jesus is glorified in our lives. We are achieving the the mission of God when we glorify Jesus by being obedient to him. We have the responsibility and the calling to glorify Jesus, to point others to him wherever we may go. And we glorify Jesus the same way that Jesus glorified the Father through obedience and submission. Now Jesus is aware that he is leaving them behind 
And as we saw a few weeks ago, he's going to leave them vulnerable. There's no longer going to be the buffer between the world and them. Jesus is going to be gone. Jesus was taking the brunt of the attacks, and now that he is departing, they are going to receive them. So Jesus asked the Father, protect my, protect them, protect the disciples. But what does Jesus want to pro- protect it primarily? Their unity. He wants them to be unified. The unity of his followers is a top priority for Jesus. They need one another. He is departing, so they need to rely on one another. The unity of Christians should therefore be our type or our top priority. There are too many Christians that fight over things that don't matter. They let their own preferences and opinions get in the way of unity. So what should be, we be around? What, what should be, we be unified around? Well, one thing, the person, work, and mission of Jesus. That should be our ultimate unity. The unity of Christians is only found through our commitment to Jesus. He is the foundation and the establishment of our unity. You see, we don't create unity within one another. We enter into it. Jesus made us one. We are tied together by the only unshakable truth, the gospel of Jesus. Our unity is not in the things that don't matter. Our unity is in the only thing that truly matters. We are unified in Jesus, sealed by the Holy Spirit, and protected by the Father. Our unity is a spiritual unity that is modeled by a triune God. Perfect unity. That's what God wants to protect. That's what Jesus wants to protect because we are stronger when we are together. We can face attacks. We can bear one another's burdens. We can love one another. We can enter into one another's lives when we have unity. And this is where many Christians and churches get it wrong. Many don't want to be unified. Rather, we just want to be individuals. We don't want to be a collective body of Christ. We want to be me, myself, and I. So there enters in tension and strain. There is toil within many churches because they have lost sight of the reason that we exist as followers of Jesus. You see, we don't exist for ourselves. We don't exist as a church to stroke our own egos. We don't exist to make ourselves feel good. We don't exist for ourselves. We exist to be a light in the darkness. We exist to point people to Jesus. We exist to bring glory to God. God saved us so we can bring glory to him, not so we can sit in our own little conclave and just brag about each other or fight with one another. And the only way that we can accomplish what we have been created for is if we pursue unity. Because we all have strengths and we all have weaknesses, but together we complement one another in unity. So we should be committed to praying for and seeking the same unity that Jesus prays for. Again, we didn't establish the unity. Rather, our job is to maintain it. And we maintain it through prayer and and by not losing sight of our calling, not losing sight of our mission. Our mission is to exalt Jesus and to love people. How can we do that if we don't stay unified? I want you to remember that being unified doesn't mean being uniform. We don't have to check our personalities or our gifting at the door. Rather, we need to use how God has gifted us and how he has created us to bring him glory rather than to try to push each other around or bring division. Now, not only does Jesus pray for our unity, that it will be protected, but he also prays that we are protected from the evil one, verses 13 through 16. Verse 13, Now I am coming to you, and I speak these things in the world so that they may have 
my joy completed in them. I have given them your word. The world hated them because they are not of this world, just as I am not of this world. I am not praying that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. You see, if we belong to Jesus, one of the things Jesus is highlighting here is that we are strangers and aliens to the world. And you know as well as I do that strangers and aliens face opposition. We are not of this world. In fact, if we belong to Jesus, we are seen as hostile to the world. And if we are doing the work set out before us, and if we are committed to pursuing Jesus, then the ruler of this world is going to attack us by any means necessary. The evil one sees targets on our back. Living for and clinging to Jesus will bring all kinds of attacks our way. But Jesus has given us this instruction. He has given us his word. He has given us the fact that he prays for us and that should sustain us. You see, his word, even in a hostile environment, will bring us joy. He says, so that my joy may be completed in them. And this is the seventh time in Jesus' farewell address and prayer for his disciples that he's considered our joy. Why? Because joy is found in him alone. Joy is found in him in the midst of suffering, in the midst of hostility, Joy is found not in our circumstances. Joy is found in the person of Jesus. Joy is found when we hold on to the word of Jesus. The purpose of knowing and reading the scriptures is to find and have complete joy. Jesus wants us to have joy. So he prays for us and for the protection in this hostile world. But he doesn't pray for us to have an easy way out. It would have been easier if Jesus would have just said, Father, take them home. Remove them from the pain they're about to endure. But instead he says this, I'm not praying that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. Why does Jesus leave us here? Because there's still work to be done. There is still those who haven't heard the message of the gospel. The world is still out there. The world needs to hear the good news. Let's see how Jesus concludes this part of the prayer. He says this, verse 17. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have also sent them into the world. I sanctify myself for them so that they may be sanctified by the truth. Now we read here a few times that word sanctify or sanctified. The word sanctify or sanctification is a very churchy word. So if you're not used to being in the church and you, you're, you're, you're from, you know, whatever, you don't understand it, well, I'm going to help you understand it hopefully a little bit. To be sanctified means to be set apart for a specific purpose. So here's a simple analogy that maybe will help us to see it. Some people grew up in families that had fine china, right? It was set apart for a specific purpose. You would not use that fine china on hamburger and hot dog night. Right? It would not just be everyday use. It was only used for special events or when a special guest was coming over. That china, for all intents and purposes, was sanctified. It was set apart for a specific purpose. Likewise, followers of Jesus are sanctified. We are set apart for the mission of God. So Jesus prayed for our protection, and he asked the, the Father to protect us from this world. And then he talks about us sanctifying it. And it seems a little, uh, us being sanctified, and it seems a little disjointed until we understand that the best protection for the followers of Jesus against a hostile world is sanctification. 
The best protection is sanctification, to grow in holiness, to be more like Jesus. To be sanctified is to be set apart. But when we are set apart, that's not the end of it. That's simply the starting point. Sanctification begins once we have been sanctified. So sanctification is a process of us being more like Jesus as God's shaping us. Remember John chapter 15 when he talks about pruning the branches. That is a sanctification. He's trimming the things away from us that don't belong. He's molding us and shaping us into the image of Jesus. So we are sanctified, we are set apart, but then we are in the process of sanctification becoming more like Jesus, having our minds and our wills and our actions conform to the person of Jesus. Sanctification is the, becoming, the process of us becoming more holy. So how are we sanctified? How are we set apart? We are first set apart by the truth. Sanctify them by your truth. That's what verse 17 says. The word of God is the one marker of sanctification for the follower of Jesus. One of the markers of the sanctification of Jesus for followers of Jesus. This means that if we belong to God, if we hold to his word, and the truth, we see the truth as authoritative in our lives, we will let that conform us. We don't allow thoughts and beliefs in the world to contradict God's word or to influence us. Why is God's word so important to us? First, it shows us the character of God. shows us who God is. God has chosen to reveal himself in these 66 books we call the Bible. These books show us what God is like. They reveal to us what God loves. And they also reveal to us what God's hate, God hates. And as we walk along this journey of the Christian life, we need to know what God loves and what he hates. We need to know his truth and we need to walk in the truth. We need to walk in the character of God. But the world, those hostile to Jesus, hate the truth. They hate the truth revealed in Scripture. They hate that God calls some things sin. They don't want to conform to God's teachings. Rather, they want to twist or manipulate Scripture to mean things that it never meant. So in order to combat false teachings and untruths, we need to learn and know the truth. We need to be sanctified in the truth. We need to seek the truth even if and when we don't like what the truth reveals. We don't have to like what God says, but we do have to obey what God says. Knowing and living God's truth is the basis of our being set apart and becoming more like him. So we are sanctified in the truth, and secondly, we are sanctified through mission. Notice what Jesus says in verse 18, as you sent me into the world, I have also sent them into the world. If we belong to Jesus, we have been sent into the world. We are called by God to love God, and then we are sent by God to love people. There is purpose in God saving us. The purpose is to go and reveal the goodness, the grace, the mercy of God to everyone. We have been set apart to go. We are set apart to glorify God in all that we say, all that we think, all that we do, and everyone we come in contact with. Now when it comes to problems or difficulties that Christians face when it comes to the world and being sent out into the world, people respond in different ways. And here are three ways that some people respond. Some Christians practice isolation from the world. Instead of engaging the world, they ignore it. They only involve themselves in Christian things. They would love to live in an isolated big piece of property, just them and their family, maybe some other Christians. They believe that living in isolation will keep them 
from falling away. So that's the route they want to go. Yet the problem with that is, is that they are disregarding the mission Jesus has called us to. He didn't call us to isolate. He called us to integrate. He called us to be representatives of his grace. And we can't do that if we are living on an island by ourselves. Some other Christians believe that they are inoculated from the world, that they have the vaccine against the world. And so what they believe is that they are saved and there is nothing that's going to cause them to fall away. They believe that they are immune to temptation and worldliness. So what do they do? They draw no boundaries. They set no limits. They live just like the world with no distinction between them and the world. These people are unwise and they disregard the truth of the scriptures. They ignore the warnings in scripture about falling away. They ignore the teachings about being in the world, but not of the world. So a better way to think about it is that we live sanctified lives as followers of Jesus is through insulation. This way of living balances faithfulness to the truth with faithfulness to the mission. We hold fast to the reality that temptation is real, but we are still called to live on mission with Jesus we live differently in the midst of the world while producing fruit of the Spirit in our lives. We pursue holiness while also engaging with the culture. We preach Jesus while also guarding our hearts. We insulate ourselves from the things of this world by being sanctified by the truth of the gospel. If you have been saved by grace, then you have been sent out by Jesus not to live in isolation, not to feel like there's nothing that can touch you, but to be a light in the darkness, knowing that the darkness still exists. You see, as followers of Jesus, we are called to go out and let people know about the gospel. So what we see here is that we are sanctified through the truth of God and through the mission of God. They work together to shape us to look more like Jesus. So church family, what I want to ask you is, are you glorifying Jesus today? Are you living on mission for him? Are you holding fast to the truth of Scripture? How you live your life is important to Jesus. Live it so that you have springs of joy coming from you. Live it so that you are the cent you're centered on the truth of who he is. Live it on mission to tell others about Jesus. If you don't know Jesus, and if you haven't placed your faith in him, there's room at the table for you. He's calling you. He wants you to love him. He wants you to follow him. He wants you to obey him. The question is, are you going to answer? Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your truth. Thank you that you set us apart for a mission. Help us not to lose sight of the mission that lies before us, Lord. That we are to be lights in the darkness. That we are to exhibit your goodness and grace to the world around us. And Father God, I pray that we would continue to seek after you to chase after you, to love you with all of our hearts, with all of our minds, with all of our soul, with all of our strength. And Lord, as we sing these last couple of songs, help us to glorify you. In Jesus' name, amen. Go ahead and stand. Let's sing. Thanks for listening. To find out more information about our church and ministries, visit fbclouise.com.